This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me today, we have the returns of he is, um, well, I was going to say, you know, well, yes, he is uh, ex-advertising man in Kuala Lumpur, but he also really is the king of Clubhouse. If you ever find yourself on Clubhouse, you will come across, and he's a very good uh, moderator and host, he is Vernon Adrian Among. I'm, uh, I'm really surprised that you had to bring up Clubhouse, but yeah, it's kind of like taken over my life recently. So thank you very much yeah. for having me again, Cam. Yeah, well, thanks for taking a break from Clubhouse and joining us <laughs> uh, on a bit of culture. And he is, it's a rare sighting of uh, one of well, my favorite guests, but he also happens to be the producer of this show. He is BFM's one and only Ali Johan. Yay, good to have the mic turned on. <laughs> Great to hear your voice. Uh, hello, so both of you. Our three topics this week will be topic number one is music in physical formats. Topic number two is libraries. And finally, topic number three is mass hysteria event. A mass hysteria event that I was caught up in. So uh, first then, uh, Ali, music in physical formats. Yeah, actually, uh, I wanted to talk about physical formats, uh, especially uh, during the pandemic. So I present this program on Wednesday night called The Pulse. We do music news mainly. And uh, one of the news items uh, that we reported on a couple of months ago were the numbers of vinyl album sales in 2020. And it reached all-time high. First and foremost, vinyls. They started becoming trendy again uh, beginning in 2006. So CDs had sort of phased out at the time. On top of uh, streaming services, your Spotify your jukes, your YouTube music, and, and all of that stuff. But a physical format is still a thing. Did you say it was an all-time high? Yeah, and did you mean like, as, in like, as high as like 1973 vinyl sales? The last high? time we recorded high numbers were in the early 90s. And then vinyl sales just dropped because the format became unpopular because of uh, you know the rise of digital formats in, in audio CDs, in MP3s, for example. Consumption of, of, of music became smaller right the formats were more handy you put it in your pocket on your phone now you know we have spotify and, and all of these other streaming apps on our phones but yeah somehow a lot of us have been buying music on vinyl again and last year it recorded the highest numbers um, wow so there are more turntables in the world than there was back then that's yeah, so weird it seems so right the way i think is because uh, i'm a music fan and you know i collect music as well in all formats um, it seems like buying a record is uh, a way that the music fans cope with the lack of live shows, for example. So you want to support your mm. local, rec- yeah. You want to support your local record store, or you want to support your favorite artist. So you buy their physical uh, merchandise and, and stuff like that. On top of that, lockdown last year produced a bunch of albums. Uh, the most popular one was by Taylor Swift, for instance. She released two albums recorded in isolation. So I think that added on to the hype. But, you know, it's still quite staggering. Like the numbers are high. And I really uh, wanted to find out from the both of you. You still collect physical format. Um, so music is one. Uh, I'll extend it to even books, uh, DVDs or whatever else that we, we have to go out and buy, uh, you know, compared to like our monthly subscription of Netflix, for instance. That must have gone up too, right? In the year of pandemic, I think... Uh, uh, YouTube premium subscriptions, uh, Netflix must have gone up as well. There's no doubt. But the fact that people are still buying physical 
yeah. it's quite amazing. Here at a bit of culture, we, uh, you know, we favor papyrus, <laughs> vellum, and quill pens. Uh, so, <laughs> not quite sure what you're talking about with this newfangled vinyl. ABBA back in the day, they made all of their money on physical formats. They they never played live, very rarely played live, and they didn't really make any money off of that. Mm. But uh, but now, if you want to make any kind of money, I mean, you know, can you could could you make money as a band as a performer? I mean, uh, I think those, that question, I mean, it depends on how big you are. Uh, I guess the bigger your name, of course, you can make money out of it. But but now the, the pie is sliced to much finer pieces, right? Because there used to be just Abba and Fleetwood Mac, for example, who would sell all these records. But these days, uh, according to the numbers of vinyl sales last year, it didn't say who sold the most, but it just right. said vinyl sales in general. People are buying physical formats. Um, right. have, you, have you guys been buying books, for example, uh, during the pandemic? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of did, um, but yeah. But Is that, do you think it's more than you would have spent uh, uh, pre-COVID? For me, less. Uh, yeah, less. Not through choice, not through choice. It's just that I really, I do need to go to a bookshop. I need to see the book. I need to see how big it is and and get a sense of, I don't know, value for money on that. I, I, I find it very hard to, to buy a book off the net. I have done, and, and during the pandemic I have done. Uh, I've stopped buying vinyl. I've got, I mean, this is a radio um, format you're, you're listening to now, so you can't see it, but behind me there's more, I've got a lot of vinyl. But I think that I've, 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 I've done the back catalogue. I've got all the things that I want, and nothing beats owning a physical thing. Uh, of something that you like, I, I find it very hard actually still to get my head around the idea that I, I can own music, but it's in a non-physical format. I, I don't yes, really feel like I, yes, I'm yes. a party to it. Yeah, but Vernon, I think you've gone fully digital, right? Oh, yeah. Um, in terms of music or audiovisual material, sometimes I wonder whether it's a good thing because it's so convenient, right? Having it in storage and pulling it out. That Yeah, like what you're saying, Cam, that tactile... Uh, interaction with the object that represents or stores, um, you know, the, the material is missing, you know, from my experience, I guess. So therefore, I was just thinking like how I rush through stuff, you know, like before when you take the trouble to take out an album, you're looking at the cover, you're playing it, etc., etc. There's a little bit more of a dalliance with it, you know, and uh, and I think that dalliance by its very effects creates a deeper maybe interaction with it. So like now I'm like, you know, just playing one song from the album, uh, jumping around and doing stuff rather than getting into the whole process of, and, and, and also with movies, I mean, like I'm rushing through stuff, you know, mm. because life is becoming so complicated. So I'm interrupting my viewing of movies, for instance, which I actually, it annoys myself to be doing that. You know, but it's easier to do it with all this digital material. Yeah, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So well, it has affected well, uh, how we interact with it. Vernon, kids these days, you you young people. <laughs> um, I we're going to move on though. But look, long live vinyl. Um, nothing beats having the actual vinyl copy of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Gatefold, beautiful colours, lyrics. You can't beat it. Uh, so we move on to topic number two, and uh, uh, Vernon, libraries. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, well, what happened was uh, actually just last night, um, I was on Clubhouse talking to a bunch of architects, and we were talking about buildings in Kuala Lumpur, and uh, the, uh, the uh, subject of the, our national library in Kuala Lumpur, um, designed by Hisham al-Bakri, came up. 
and we noticed that you know the roof of the building had changed uh, and some people hadn't noticed it that it had gone from blue to brown do you guys know this and it's got a very spectacular roof yeah, yeah, yeah. um oh okay i haven't driven right. past that road for a while well actually it's be it's, it changed a long time ago i remember it to be blue though it, yeah it started out blue and then it became brown so some people kind of like remember the blue and some people went did it change and stuff like that and and these were people who actually had special relationships with the library okay and then we started talking about you know like uh uh have you been inside and what did you think and stuff like that and we came around to the idea that for most of us our last visit or our first visit was because of layouts and then we began to talk about you know uh libraries and whether or not um it's really serving its place uh in society in the public among us in the community um which comes around to the same you know kind of uh, uh same kind of uh feeling about what we were talking about just now about uh the new formats in music so like the new formats in books uh, how we relate to information and knowledge and stuff like that are we are we using libraries the way our parents used to or ourselves you know like when was the last time you went to your uh, public library um when was the last time you borrowed a book do you have a library card membership you know kind of thing um, do they use library cards now what's the way to go you know with libraries in malaysia you know yeah i i've never actually been inside the the national library uh, on Tun Razak. Never been inside. Driven past it a thousand times, million times. But uh, I, I, a while ago, I interviewed for this show Annabelle Tay Gallup, who is the the head of the Malay language collect, collection for the British Library. And I, I put it to her. I was saying though that this part of the world probably doesn't have much of a a written word history because of the way that the 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 weather here degrades paper. It's just not. I, I don't really know if paper and the written word is as important here as it is in many other places. I, I don't really get that impression. I don't know. Yeah, we're not a reading society as much as, you know, I guess. Uh, well, I mean, book sales are actually, if you've got a Kinokuni here, book sales apparently are very good here. And, and, and just to follow, actually, for, for, with, your, with your topic, uh, book sales have gone up uh, during the pandemic. And I think they've probably gone up in this country as much as anywhere else. But um, th- I don't think there's a really a respect for it. Uh, I got the archives here, National Archives, on John Dutta. Oh, I love fantastic. that place. Yeah. Yes. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah. It's not got a huge collection, but it's got that beautiful atmosphere, that library sound and level of concentration. I don't know. Yeah, we were Ali, talking you, about that. Yeah, Ali, are you sorry. a library kind of guy? Mm, not at all. And in fact, just thinking about it, probably the last time uh, I stepped into one was in uni. And I remember university libraries to be very good. But... Yeah, Vernon and I live in Tamanton and we have one public library here that I've never been to. Uh, I went to the building uh, for a wedding instead. Uh, I know there's a library in the next block uh, and it looks pretty nice, but I wish I had because we never, at least I grew up not having a relationship with a place like that. We were told to buy books, uh, much less to borrow it from a library because uh, we would always take it home and not return it and get in trouble and that sort of stuff, you know. there wasn't a, I guess, a, a nice... A tradition. Little, yeah, a tradition of borrowing books and just going in there and looking at the vast uh, collection of what they have to offer. But we do know uh, as a society that that's a good place to to go and look out for stuff, um, you know, to get If it's a good library. 
if it's a good library. I mean, I, I have been to public libraries here, and they're terrible. I mean, they're just, you know, it's just like hmm. the but building which, itself. Which, which libraries did you go there, to? Which? There's one, I think it's actually called the KL Library. It's down by the Padang behind the Slango Club. That's America. Yeah, yeah. And it's, right, it's a yeah. good building. Um, this was a while back. I went there. It's a good building, and a lot of people work there, but they got very few books. Hmm. And the books they do have are really not very good. I have a question. Do, do you think it would help if we had more uh, Taman libraries? Like we have one in Taman Tuan, for example. If we had a Bangsa library, a DU, DJ library, Ampang library, that sort of stuff? I think if community libraries were, were ubiquitous, you know, maybe there might be, because of the ease and the convenience, then maybe people might become more inclined to develop a relationship with a library. And so therefore, um, you know, the topic uh, of yesterday's discussion was how can we make it the go-to place for the community? And, you know, is it is it possible, given the fact that Papyrus books are going out of, but then as you mentioned, Cam, you know, people are buying books. Uh, yeah, so how can we how can we do things with libraries such that they return to becoming the hub of a community, um, you know, where where relationships can can be encouraged? Yeah. And if stuff like if that. they ever were a hub of a community, I, that that's the thing that I'm I'm asking. I, I I don't know if we're actually building or returning to something, some golden age, or if it's a brand new construction to get people to go to a library in Malaysia. Mm. I mean, my and, favorite place in the whole world is a library. It's the London Library, obviously in London. And uh, I didn't go to university, but I went there. And uh, and I would just, it's a big library where you're able to go through and choose all the books. And, and I learned so much. And I and I, I really couldn't imagine who I'd be if I, if I had not had that experience. Well, I had, in, in secondary school, my dream was to be a librarian. And I yeah. did become a librarian, you know. I didn't yeah. want to become a prefect. I wanted to become a librarian. You know, and I remember in the interview uh, to to get the post, the the teacher, uh, supervising teacher, said, "Why do you want to be a librarian?" And I said, "I, but because it's the closest thing to owning books, lots of books, you know." And uh, yeah, so for me, growing up, books was special, and uh, libraries was special, and uh, I would love if a library could become the hub of my community, you yeah. know, where yeah, yeah. 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 It would be great to have its own building, right, where people go to and frequent and hang out. Um, but I see it morphing into more of a community space. You know, you can use the halls for conferences and all of that. I feel like it could diminish the value of the library again. You know, it's become part of a building that's, you know, where people go to, but not necessarily just to borrow and, and, and to read books. But I, I really love the picture you're painting there, Alia. But if people knew that the, the core of it, the center of it, the main purpose is, is, is a place that contains books, whatever else you do around it in the satellite aspect, I mean, if you, if you know that the center of it is books and, and knowledge, then yeah. I think it would permeate. Oh, it's a beautiful idea. And, you know, and if we hope and pray and we're pure of heart, then maybe it'll happen in uh, Malaysia somewhere. Uh, well, uh, yeah. I, I, well, the discussion we had yesterday was actually moving towards uh, starting a special interest groups to actually turn libraries into, you know, centers of community and communion and stuff like that. So uh, do, do yeah. it, Vernon. I'll follow you. I will. I will follow you. Uh, do it. Do it. You'll be the Pied Piper of uh, libraries. I'll, I'll be there. We must move on, though. And in a moment, uh, we're going to experience a mass hysteria moment that I was involved with here on BFM eighty nine point nine. 
And we're back with myself, Cam Raslan, Vernon Adrian Among, and Ali Johan. And now, uh, a mass hysteria event that I was involved with. So mass hysteria is what? It's, uh, it's when a community, uh, small or indeed global, uh, through fear, usually, um, exhibit, uh, well, hysteria. Hysteria can be screaming. So a couple of years ago up in Kalantana, you might remember, there was a story of a, a girl's boarding school where the girls all started screaming. And um, it was in, in Malaysian style, put down to evil spirits. And so they chopped down the trees and problem solved. Um, so I was involved in one when I was about 10 years old. Uh, in you were in a girls' school? No, I was in an all-boys school, Vernon. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so I was about 10 years old in an all-boys school. And it was the day of the f- uh, annual flu vaccine shots. So I thought this story was also ah, okay. relevant for the times that we're in and the, things, the stories I'm hearing on Twitter. So it was a vaccine shot. And um, so, the, you know, the, the boys went and had their vaccine shots. And then during the course of the morning, um, boys started fainting. And it was very peculiar because you'd be walking around and suddenly, you know, a boy would just collapse. And then you'd be in the classroom and then, you know, the kid next to you would just faint. And... And I realized that we were in a, you know, when you're at school, you're in situations a lot of the time where you cannot talk. You're not allowed to talk. So these events were happening. and We weren't allowed to communicate with each other, like what's going on. And we were not getting information from the grown-ups uh, about what's going on. Because the grown-ups were probably terrified that the school was going to get sued for having killed, you know, teen children in, in a single day. And, uh, and, and then when lunchtime came, it was, uh, we, we would have to queue up. And whilst queuing, these boys were just dropping like flies. And the thing that I remember also was the silence of it. So, you, I mean, I say mass hysteria. You assume screaming and the such. This happened in absolute silence. You know, a boy would just fall, and then the prefects and a teacher would go and swoop them and take them off to, I don't know, just throw them on a pile of bodies outside. And so then finally I got to the front of the queue, and I, I was just in a state of panic by this point. And so I was at the front of the queue, and... I fainted. I collapsed. And the next thing I know, I'm coming to, I'm in the arms of one of the teachers, and, and I'm, I'm in front of the whole school of queuing up, and I'm saying, mummy, 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 which was so embarrassing that I wanted to just faint again. So I got <laughs> taken off to the hall where all these, all these boys were being rounded up, and it was like something out of, I don't know, Stalingrad or something, you know, there's bodies lying around. But we, we all said come to, and you know, it became okay. But what was really interesting was that uh, I was actually the control test in this. And this is very useful, I think, for looking at the, this vaccine moment and the, 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 the hysteria around this vaccine moment. Um, because it turned out that I was the only boy who had fainted, who had not actually had an injection, which was very embarrassing. <laughs> They yeah, feel for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the good thing was, for everybody involved, was like, well, they, at least the authorities knew that it wasn't a, a bad batch or something, a bad batch of vaccine, because there was this one kid who had fainted, um, and there was nothing wrong with him. And uh, so I remember at the end of the day, uh, we were being picked up by, by our parents, and one of these boys, I was having a conversation with one of the boys, and he was saying, oh, yeah, so you, uh, you fainted, did you? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, um, so yeah, that was my mass hysteria moment. We, so now, ever since then, I was about 10 years old, ever since then, I feel I have an insight into to mass hysteria. So when I hear these stories, but also into that kind of uh, Trump world 
the kind of the hysteria that made someone like Donald Trump or, you know, the anti-vaxxers. I don't agree with a word they say, but I can, I can understand how fear can... Fear is the most important um, emotion when it comes to people making decisions and choices. And if you have a combination of no information and low information, um, you know, ignorance and no information, plus fear equals mass hysteria. So uh, I was wondering, have you guys ever been involved in mass hysteria? Or are you just, just way too cool for that kind of thing? You wouldn't fall for it, would you? Mm, no, I don't know. Never. But I actually have a question for you. What did you feel like when you were approaching the front of the line, when you were seeing other kids? What was going through your mind? Yeah, because like I say, it was, a, it was a time when I, we couldn't talk. You know, it's one of those moments you're not allowed to talk in that queue. And the sense of um, isolation because you, you, you're really completely isolated in your own, your own head, searching around for information from the faces of other kids who are your peers. You know, they're all 10 years old. No, they also don't know a damn thing. And you're, you're searching for some, some guiding authority to say it's going to be okay. But instead, you see these flickering eyes of fear everywhere. I don't know how other kids had not fainted. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, another kid just fell. My friend, whatever, I don't care. I, I couldn't understand that thought process. So apart from the uh, having the fear of the vaccine, um, the fear of other boys around you, I mean, were they kind of like, you know, collapsing into this uncontrollable heaving or whatever it was? No, no, maybe I should have clarified. It was a decision of the parents whether or not you, the kids, were given the vaccine. Okay. Uh, it wasn't compulsory. So my mother had decided, well, actually, my mother had, didn't even know it was happening. I, I had failed to pass on the information to my mother that there was going to be a, <laughs> a vaccine day. Classic. <laughs> and um, so I wasn't signed up for it. But uh, the kids who had been signed up, I guess their parents had signed them up. So their parents had said, it's all fine. Don't worry. It's all going to be okay. Um, but the kids themselves must have been a little bit, well, I don't know. And so once they saw one of their peers collapse, it, it, it ripple effect through through that crowd um and i i um i don't know what i mean what was i thinking i hadn't had the injection mm. why i to this day i don't know why uh and and i fear that there's a part of me that is uh really susceptible to to you know the the mood of the crowd oh wow yeah. cam we should yeah. be careful with you now yeah, yeah, because, you know, if the crowd decides to sort of, it's, it's time to, to beat Vernon to death, you know, I'll be there at the oh, exactly. story. <laughs> I can't control myself. You know, you've heard of that. You know, you've heard of that Malay uh, thing called Malata, right? Yeah. And there are certain people who are actually more prone to it or more easily uh, influenced into it than other people, Right. I, I don't know whether either of you have read anything about whether or not the, the phenomenon of Malata is in any way associated with uh, the propensity uh, for hysteria brought on by suggestion, you know, or, you know, basically, yeah, are you, are you more susceptible to uh, the powers of suggestion? Uh, Ali, um, Ali, Ali, I leave this one to you. Do you, do you <laughs> in your family, is this a thing? Uh, it's a thing in my family, and it's funny, right? Uh, but after a while, you you start to feel sorry for that person. Uh, my aunt Lata quite easily, um, and she goes on and on and on. 
But yeah, I always wondered about that too. You know, I always wondered how and why, uh, what kind of person you become when you lata uh, or like, yeah, you know, what goes through. Because it's always like a, it's like an instinct. It's like a, it's like a knee-jerk reaction, verbal diarrhea. It's a neurodiversity kind of thing that, uh, that I, I find it kind of like interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Because, well, because the phenomenon itself has been said to be only to with certain cultures is that correct but i only know it in the there's world. been some study done where where certain cultures have been pointed out to have this yeah but i yeah. have never seen it in any other culture that's your millennials for you cam you reckon huh? <laughs> 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 oh yeah okay i was doing it for my people um <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of that. But I mean, I mean, well, I mean, well, very briefly, I mean, I guess that it, perhaps it's in the same ballpark is um, Amok, I suppose, maybe. It's, that's not mass yeah. hysteria. I mean, that's like an individual hysteria within the mass. But with Amok, I think that when you really break it down, it's often when a, a, a man is... Um, feels themselves to have been insulted uh, w- without recourse to... Uncontrollable rage, basically. Yeah. Uncontrollable rage, but why? what induces that? I mean, often there's an insult that the person is unable to reply to uh, because of uh, cultural norms. You, you can't, you know, the person who's insulted you, you can't reply to. They're, yeah. they're way up yeah. there and you're down there. Yeah, maybe hysteria is similar, right? In that way that um, when you see other people losing their minds, there's probably no time to find out why. And, and you just go with the flow? That- I think you are, it's only in my case, you really had to add the element of fear. There had to be something to be afraid of. Mm. Um, in our case, you know, flu injections. People that had the injection, they didn't really know what the hell it was. And so that fear, you know, kids didn't know, okay, you stick this needle in my arm and then something amazing is supposed to happen. Well, you, you stick the needle in my arm and, and nothing is supposed to happen. It's not you, I'm going to get superpowers. Yeah. What we have learned is that um, it might be that my response was um, culturally uh, induced because my malayness was coming to the fore. <laughs> okay. I want to believe um, that. All right. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, I guess that's better than just sort of just simply saying, it's just, I'm a weak person and I'm, <laughs> I'm suggesting... Blame your culture. Go on. <laughs> I mean, like, like for instance, uh, we'll finish in a moment, but I was, I was in a uh, shopping mall and a brand new uh, donut shop, in KL, donut shop had opened and there was a very long queue. So I just joined the queue. I don't like donuts, but, you know... Uh, Society had decided that this thing was very popular. So I thought, I simply have to find, I've got to join. I got to the end. I bought the donuts. They were disgusting. But I'm so glad that I joined that queue because I'm a weak person. <laughs> so anyway, we, and with that, we come to the end of this. But uh, we're, we have one last section, uh, recommendations, where we recommend something that we think might be of interest. And Ali Johan goes first. Yeah, I have a recommendation on top of recommendation. First, I got inspired by watching uh, this documentary called The Mark of Empire uh, on Channel News Asia, a Singapore documentary hosted by wonderful Peter Lee. He makes historical documentaries about Southeast Asia sound and look really good. But beyond that, I I got really interested to know more about Asian history. And I discovered uh, this podcast on Spotify called Kings and Generals. Uh, mm. And I think it's been mm. around a long time. I just come around to it. Uh, and I like that uh, it's about 
30 to 40 minutes listen of um, you know a time in history from the history of the Mongols to uh, Napoleon Wars, Rome and the Cold War as well. So a lot of history to go through. Perfect for when you know I'm doing the dishes or just cleaning up. A podcast called Kings and Generals on Spotify. Yeah, they're actually on YouTube as well. They have they, Kings and Generals. The, the, those very, I'm sure those very things you've you've listened to actually have animation and stuff on YouTube. Mm, they're very mm. good actually. Uh, yeah, and I, I was actually listening out for that if there were elements of a more visual accompaniment to it, but it plays well as a as a listen only. So I like that. Uh, you know, I don't have to watch a video of it. I can put it on headphones. Yeah, no, on. very good. Yeah, it's really I, nice. I, I like them very much. There we go. Kings and Generals. Yeah, yeah, good. Vernon. Yeah, well, uh, recently I uh, watched a documentary called Coded Bias. Um, and uh, it's about how algorithms have actually got within it uh, their own biases because of the data that goes in. Um, or rather, when the algorithms or, you know, when the, when the machine learning was, was, was created, um, the uh, data that was fed into it already had a bias. So when so when uh, when the uh, machine re- like for instance facial recognition, you know facial recognition tends to uh, be more how shall I say uh, uh, influencing on white faces because um, it was it, the the algorithms were created by fair-skinned or white people so. Therefore, when it comes to facial recognitions, um, darker skinned people um, have problems with it or are not well read. And therefore, there is a bias happening where, um, you know, you might actually be at higher risk for being profiled in a wrong way, you know, and stuff like that. So it kind of like made me think, wow, uh, we're moving into this area of, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and... uh, the artificial intelligence is actually carrying along with it, you know, the biases of uh, the people who, who are involved in its creation and stuff like that. So that transmission um, of biases and prejudices uh, into our technology um, to me is kind of like a, a weird and fascinating thing that uh, uh, we can actually transmit these kinds of things into. So does that make us mathematical in a yeah, sense? Because, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Really interesting because on the one hand, AI is supposed to be, you know, smarter than us or like learning from humans, uh, but it mirrors human instincts. Right. Exactly. How disappointing is that, right? Disappointing, yeah. right? Because <laughs> it comes from us as well, right? So it's yeah, built yeah. by humans. AI would be devolving down to the average of the coders, which yeah. might be... A middle-class oh, yeah. white oh, man oh, oh. from Ohio. Exactly. And then it made me think about the DNA that I sent over to Ancestry.com um, to find out about my did, did they my ancestry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to find out about my Ancestry. And, you know, the, the, the ancestral g- genetics um, also depends on what exactly you put into it. So that's the documentary Coded Bias, which uh, is on Netflix. I have not yet watched it. Yep. And uh, so my, my recommendation is a couple of weeks ago, I recommended, um, or was it last week, a, uh, a detective drama that's out now that is being transmitted as we speak called Mayor of East Town, starring Kate Winslet. It's an HBO thing, and it's very good. And so I checked out another one of the HBO uh, detective-y, drama-y things from last year, and it's called The Outsider. Um, 
it uh, it's actually based on a Stephen King book. I mean, isn't everything? And uh, it's uh, it was starring briefly and is is directed by Jason Bateman, uh, one of my favorite actors. Uh, very well directed, and it's um it's really good. I haven't finished it yet. It's quite creepy. Uh, you know, Stephen King, and and it's. What Stephen King? You know, I've never read a Stephen King book. Either of you two ever read Stephen King book? I've only read his book on writing. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, Stephen King on writing, which is a fascinating book. I've never. I'm not into horror movies, and neither am I into horror stories. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, but I he's must, a great writer, based yeah. just based on that book. I must have watched I don't know fifty movies and TV shows based on a Stephen King book, mm. um, but. Uh, but it, it's good, and uh, so I'm enjoying. It's not as good as Mayor, Mayor of Easttown, which which would still be a bigger recommendation. But I'm enjoying it, and uh, I don't think it got the as big an audience as it should have had when it came out. So I'm lending the power of a bit of culture to uh, <laughs> boost the. Uh, so, you know, people in HBO will suddenly see their figures for the outsider shoot through the roof. It's like, oh, this happens. All coming from Malaysia. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, so, so, so do it for Malaysia. And um, <laughs> so that uh, brings us to the end of this week's show, um, where you got, you've been told now you've all got to go out, buy vinyl, and go to a library, and, <laughs> and do, do not fall prey to mass hysteria somehow. <laughs> and, uh, and only remains to, to thank special honored guests, Ali Johan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Wonderful to have you here. And uh, as I say, uh, the king of of clubhouse uh, also a recommendation is if if you do have a iphone you still have to have an iphone don't you yeah, yeah. but but they are testing on androids already so that oh, should come along i guess within the next month or so oh we are testing he speaks for <laughs> clubhouse. <laughs> and uh and myself cam russland and so please join us next week for another exciting episode of a bit of culture here on bfm 89.9 Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.